So the book of Esther is a unique book in, in all of Scripture for a number of reasons. And uh, I'm going to try to help you unpack some of those reasons. But if you're not familiar, Esther's about a young woman named Esther who finds herself uh, queen of Persia. Now that's pretty unlikely. And we're going to explore uh, why that is the case. And, and I'm going to preach through an entire four chapters today, but I ask you not, as I said, to be alarmed. Uh, there's some there's just two introductory pieces I want to kind of introduce you to so we know what kind of book it is that we are reading here as we look at this narrative. So the book of Esther is a story, but it's a historical story. It's a, it's a narrative about what happened in the life of a woman who God called and God used in a significant and surprising way. In fact, we've named this series that's going to run for the next few weeks behind the scenes, and you'll see why in a moment. But the first thing I want to tell you about this book is uh, it's what we technically call an ideological narrative. Uh, you may better know that as an origin story. It's a story that tells the origin of some facet of culture in society. And in this way, Esther tells us the story of, of a particular Jewish feast called the Feast of Purim. And this feast happens still, they sell, Jewish people still celebrate it regularly, but the origin of it was this moment of redemptive history, this moment of God acting in the history of the Jewish people in the book of Esther. And we're going to see uh, why that is the case. It, a story in a narrative like this would answer the question a child might have at a holiday when they say, what are we celebrating? Why are we celebrating this feast? And it's the account of the historical events that led to that particular celebration. The second thing to know by way of background is that, interestingly, in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. He's never once named. He's not referred to, not in any uh, sort of direct way. And the fact that God is not mentioned has had uh, scholars in the past or at different times say, well, should this really be in the Bible? And I think actually if, if, if people really responded to that impulse, we would lose out on seeing one of the most powerful things about the message of the book of Esther, which is that God is so often acting in our lives behind the scenes. That one of the ways we see God's work isn't always in those direct moments of involvement in our lives where he's so evident, but in the grand scope of them when we, when we pull out and we see decades of our life and we see the way that God has been arranging our story, arranging our history, directing our backstory for a particular moment. And he was behind the scenes all the time. Painful times, tragic times, joyful times, slow times, redundant, boring times. But God is behind the scenes acting for his purpose. And because of that, Esther is written specifically this way. So that we would experience that in the book of Esther. We would look for it. We would think, what are all the ways that God is so loudly mentioned in this book without ever being named? And that's what we see going on here. So... I want to bring us then into chapter 4, where we just read these words a moment ago. And you don't, don't turn there yet. It, it just start off in chapter 1 and kind of peruse with me as we walk our way through these first couple chapters. The book of Esther begins with an introduction to the Persian king, Ahasuerus. Describing the extent of his influence, the grandeur of his kingdom, the king's court, the feast. In fact, the way it's introduced to us, we're just supposed to see how lavish and powerful... He was. 
In doing so, the writer has prepared us to sense the vast reach and epic proportion of his reign for the entirety of the known world so that later when we, when we hear this problem introduced, we realize it's, it's a huge problem. And so that's the first thing. But then, as we, as we get introduced to that, the introduction to Ahasuerus and all of his lavish wealth and influence and power gives way to describing uh, two very important, the ways in which two very important characters find themselves in unique and unlikely positions in the Persian kingdom. And so we see that two people that shouldn't really be in places of influence end up in strange places of influence. That happens through a series of reversal events in the first couple chapters where, uh, where something that started off in one stable sort of setting is totally reversed. And so we see that in the downfall of Queen Vashti in chapter 1. She was the queen that was with Ahasuerus and she decides not to join in some of the festivities and like a king can do, he just gets upset and gets rid of her. Now, it doesn't say particularly that he killed her. Um, it just says that she no longer gets her privileged position. Which leads to the unlikely ascension of a, at the time, secretly Jewish maiden named Hadassah, who we come to, to call Esther. So her Hebrew name would have been Hadassah, and Esther was part of this uh, additional name that she had come to be known by. But she, she advances to the prominent position vacated by Vashti, through something like, a, I don't know, like a sixth century bachelor show. I mean, it really is kind of like that, as much as those shows are awful. So, so the, you know, basically he rolls out this plan, like, go get all of the ladies, bring it in, bring them before me, prepare them, and I'll pick out the one that I like the best. And here comes Esther. She's chosen as one of these ladies to be prepared to be presented to the king. And he shows favor on her. And before long, she's gone from what we discover has been like a, a tragic sort of situation backstory in her life where she was one of the exiles brought out of Jerusalem when it was destroyed. And her parents died and she was orphaned and she's raised by her uncle, a guy named Mordecai. And so she's being raised by Mordecai, and it's been a kind of a tragic life. She's an exile, and she's living in a foreign land. She's lost her parents, doesn't really have a sense of family. And before long now, she's like second in all of the land. Huge reversal, unlikely situation, begging the question, why in the world? What in the world is going on? Why in the world would that happen? And then another unlikely thing happens in chapter 2. The uncle who raised her, named Mordecai, I know it's setting up all kinds of storylines here, but the uncle who raised her, named Mordecai, he happens to be hanging around at the gate of sort of the castle complex. And while he's there, he's, he overhears some of the king's men talking about a plot to kill the king. He overhears this, and we, we discover that in it, in chapter 2, verse 21. Just go there with me or just listen as I read along. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, they became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. 
And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that's going to be important next week. But I thought I would mention it here. Maybe you'll consider coming back to find out why. But important for today is Mordecai and Esther find themselves in this place of favor before a king when they began their lives as exiles. Unlikely. Unlikely people to be in any place of influence in the kingdom. And it's God's, God's sort of behind-the-scenes reversals that have set this up. And so that brings us into chapter 3 and what the stories are really all about. That was all just to set us up so we know Mordecai is this faithful guy who's loyal, uh, who has raised... Uh, this woman Esther who now has gone from this tragic situation to being in the castle in the place of influence and we're introduced then to a serious conflict because that's not the point of the story the point isn't that Esther becomes queen so we're introduced to a serious conflict and another important character in chapter three the character's name is Haman so just reviewing the, all these characters, we've got Esther, she's the queen, Mordecai's her uncle, and then we have, let's just say, he's going to be the villain, all right? We've got Haman. Haman is, uh, in chapter 3, promoted to a prominent position as the king's chief advisor. And the other advisors would often pay homage to him to, by bowing in public at the city gate. And so he was so important and so influential that when he came past the city gate, many of the people, they would stop and they would kneel down and they would show respect to him as he would pass by. And the conflict comes to us by way of Haman's relationship with Uncle Mordecai. Mordecai, as a devout Jewish man, would do no act of worship. He wouldn't participate in any act of worship or anything that looked like an act of worship. And so when Haman came by, he wouldn't be disrespectful to him, but there was no way that he was going to bow to anyone but the Lord. And so we see that Mordecai would not bow as Haman would pass by. And it's a fact that constantly infuriates Haman. It upsets him every time. And so you imagine 99.9% .9 of the people will bow for him and this one guy is the guy that makes him mad. It's the one he wants. As Haman seeks to find out the reason though, what he discovers is that it's not simply an individual problem with Mordecai. It's not just that Mordecai won't bow, but that it's Mordecai's faith. That it's his observance of Jewish instruction that is at fault for what he considers to be Haman's public humiliation. And at this point, it's not only Mordecai in Haman's mind, but the whole Jewish race itself. The whole Jewish race in all the vast reaches of the kingdom that Haman is convinced must be eliminated if he is ever to be happy. And so you, you see how this happens. You know, he's, he's feeling rejected, disrespected because Mordecai won't bow. And his solution is he discovers, well, it's not just that Mordecai won't bow. It's that his devotion to his faith will not allow him to bow. Therefore, let's just get rid of everyone that is of that faith. And so he creates a plot, a plan to convince the king to do just that. And we see that in verse 8 of chapter 3. Verse 8 of chapter 3 introduces us to what Haman does. In verse 8 it says, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad 
and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdoms. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So that sounds interesting. He says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed then that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the king's hands for those of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So it says in verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said, said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. So then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, these are the people out in the provinces, to the governors over the provinces, to the officials of all the people, and to all the province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. It's an extermination law. A great threat to the Jewish people. It's, Han it's Haman's manner of choosing the date for the event that later comes to the, to, leads to the name of the feast. And I think it underscores the irony of the entire course of events. Haman cast lots, or what they would call poor. Sort of like dice in Persian. To determine the day in which the sl slaughter should be enacted. And the casting of lots was an act by which people left kind of a particular decision to the unseen guiding hand of fate, to the hands of the gods. And so it's in this fourth chapter that we have some of the most memorable moments in all of the narrative and what we wrote, read this morning. It's here that Esther discovers that behind the scenes of all these reversal of circumstances in her own life, Behind the scenes of all that has been a divine hand that has been positioning her. It's been positioning her to act on a moment where God is going to use her to redeem and rescue her people from certain death. To redeem and rescue her people from destruction. And so she begins to discover in this fourth chapter a divine hand and a divine purpose. And that divine purpose brings her face to face with the reality of her personal role in the situation, and her responsibility to act. And so chapter 4 does this really interesting thing for us in the Old Testament. It takes us inside the experience of Esther's personal sense of calling. Who she is before God. What God has done in her backstory to bring her to this moment. The way in which she is going to have to now work out her personal decisions at great cost to herself in order to engage in the plan that God has made for her. And you know, in a lot of ways, this is, 
This is an experience that isn't just unique to Esther, but is a common experience of anyone who seeks to walk with the Lord, anyone who wants to discover what their life really is all about, that we enter into this situation where God's big picture plan, God's big picture calling, His big picture instructions come to challenge us on a personal level, and we have to make a decision about what our life is going to look like. And so here, we get to walk inside of Esther's experience of personal calling and discover what it's like for us even to walk through our own discovery and our own moments of personal calling in our lives as we seek to live for God's purpose. So that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. We're just going to see the way this this particular passage helps us discover that and understand the experience of responding to God's individual callings in our lives. Now, I just want to offer some thoughts on the whole idea of calling for a moment. Before we jump all the way into what's going on with Esther here, I want to try to answer the question, what do we mean by calling? If you've been in church much of your life, you may have heard people say, I'm called to do this, or I'm called to do that, or I have a calling to be a part of this. You know, in the big picture in our culture, uh, we, we talk about people responding to larger callings in their life, like stepping into a really important moment that seems to be in line with all that their personal history has been leading up to. So what is a calling? Well, a calling... Uh, I like to think of it this way. It's a place where divine prerogatives meet personal positioning. Callings in our life are places where divine prerogatives, what God can call out from us, meets personal positioning. Our time, our place, our readiness, what God has been doing in our lives. Maybe that's too fancy though. Divine prerogatives, personal positioning. Callings are those places where God's big story meets your backstory in a way that requires you to act and resolve to obey. You see, what you might not realize is that your own personal story is not the only thing going on in the world. We almost always live primarily out of our own sense of personal story, don't we? Until we discover that there's a bigger personal story going on, there's a bigger story that's happening, and that we can't actually define our own story apart from what God is doing in history and doing in our lives. Maybe you've never discovered or understood that or or, or tapped into what God says about what he's doing, the big picture of what God wants to do in and through your life, But, but the reality is God is doing something. And... Calling is, is kind of that place where God's big story meets your backstory in a way that requires you to act and to resolve to be obedient. And there's a couple things as I continue to think about calling then. Calling is not root, it's, it's rooted, it's not random. So sometimes when you start talking to people about calling, they just feel like they can say whatever they want, right? And it's kind of like a trump card. Well, I feel called to do this and not feel called to do that. And it doesn't really work that way because that just feels like, you know, if we leave it to that, any person could say, God wants me to do this or God wants me to do that and just shut down conversation, right? And then how are we left to figure anything out, right? If we're just left to ourselves. Well, we discover even in this passage that that calling in our life, what God wants from us, what he's preparing for us, the personal way that we live for God, it's rooted in the big patterns of who God is and what he's doing. It's not just random. 
So callings are not random interests in your life. They're rooted in divine priorities that you discover in Scripture. So you can't discover your sense of personal calling without first rooting yourself deep into, into God's story, into who God is, into what He is doing and purposing in the world. You see, our sense of calling always flows out of the rooted sense of what God's priorities are in the world. And the more we, we get a sense of God's patterns and God's priorities and what He's doing in the world, the greater chance we have of discovering the ways in which our life are per is meant to be purposefully weaved into that. So it's not just a random inspiration that you have. In fact, if... If you're really, really confused about how it is you're to act in the future and what it is God may be doing in your life, it's partly an indicator that you're also not deeply rooted in the big patterns of what God is even up to. And the more you draw near to God's word, draw near to the Lord, the more you understand who God is, the easier it is going to be for you to get a sense of what he might be doing in your life. So it's important to remember calling is rooted, not random. But calling is also, it's important because on the other side, we have this mistake people often make. They're just like, okay, God says to do a bunch of general things in the Bible, and I'll just figure out how to do some of those. But life is a lot more personal than that. We see all throughout the, the scriptures that God doesn't just give us generalized ideas and say, go figure out how to obey. There's times when we just have to do that. But there are many ways in which God's activity intersects our lives and calls out of us a response personally. There are personal ways in which God desires you to respond to what he's doing in the world and work your way and fit yourself into that. And they're so important. They're so important to the lives of the people that God has placed you around to impact. And if you don't respond to those callings, the Lord will have to walk around you. But we see that callings are personal, not just principles. Callings are not just general principles. They're personal ways we are responsible to act on God's principles. Listen to what I mean, dads, for a second. Being a dad is a calling. There are general instructions for what it is like to be a dad, what we should be like, how we should talk, how we should act, our mentality, the responsibilities we have. It has general principles and priorities given to us from God that are rooted in his word. That's important. You need to know those. But listen, you're not called to be everyone's parent. You're called to be the parent of the children that God has given you. And for everyone, that ends up looking like a really unique calling as a dad. That's why it's both, we got universal principles, and at times we've got really, really specific ways that we've got to be wise, and we've got to get before God, and we've got to work out that calling. So what that looks like for me is I, I've got a calling as a dad of four girls. That's a different calling than some of you have. It's one that requires some extra prayer. <laughs> Sorry, girls. Don't look at them. They're not sitting over here. But I've got a calling as a dad of four girls. That's different than Ryan Pugh, right? Who's got a calling as a dad of seven boys. How we act wisely as fathers, we can take general principles, but it requires walking closely to the Lord and figuring out, knowing the people God has called me to, and then acting in the ways that are most obedient to that scenario and personal circumstance that God has placed me in. See, that's what calling looks like. 
I've got the calling to be a dad of a daughter who has a congenital heart defect. It means I exist inside of a community of people who understand some circumstances and differences in life to other people who don't walk through that same thing. I realize that every time I meet a parent who shares that with me, that they also have that calling and there are special things that we have to do to work that out and what it looks like for us to be obedient. This is why it's so dangerous for us all the time to compare ourselves as parents, as dads, that when we look at our situations, because our callings, although they're similar and they fit this broad, rooted category, they're unique, and your kids need a dad who's engaged, thinking about what your calling looks like being worked out in their life as a father. You see, that's because callings are personal. They're not just principles. They have to be wrestled with. So our callings in life may be many because God has often given us more than one thing to do. I'm not just a father, I'm also a husband. But I'm not just a husband in general, I'm a husband of my wife. I got lucky, all right? I'm also a pastor. That's my vocational calling, that's my work calling. But all of those different things together and other things like them are also a special combination in my life. There are people who are pastors who don't have kids. And and working out their calling and obedience doesn't take the same kind of thinking. They have a different situation that they've got to work out and figure out what it looks like to be faithful. And so for us to be faithful to responding to God's calling, it means we we have to get spiritually engaged with God. It's not just something we passively do. So our callings in life may be many, and we have to work those together, and that, that creates a special mix of how we work out our lives before God. Because our callings are rooted in God's word, and they're personal to our situations, it means that we have to spend time reflecting, fellowshipping with the Lord, fellowshipping with his people if we're really going to work them out well. And often there, this is the thing, often there are key moments where God challenges us to embrace a calling that he has prepared for us. And in your life, you may be in one of those moments in some area of calling where God is challenging you to embrace what he has been preparing for you. It may be a difficult calling to renew your marriage as a husband or wife, where you realize you've been struggling for a while, but but a calling isn't something you can just set aside and isn't something to be neglected just because it's difficult in the road ahead, but God is calling you to a certain obedience to renew your marriage because you have a calling that has to be worked out in your situation. You may not like what has happened to you or how your spouse has responded or the circumstances that have surrounded you, but God calls you into those circumstances to be a part of his redemptive work for what he wants to do for tomorrow. Similarly, you may be a call, have a calling as a parent to do the same thing, to re-engage with a fresh sense of purpose, the responsibility you have as a dad or a mom. Whether your kids are grown and in the home, or whether they're gone and your opportunities for influence look different than gathering around the t- dinner table, you still have a calling. Maybe it's a calling for ministry 
It might be a calling that God has been working out in your life to shift vocations from what you've been doing with your day job to a future where God wants to use you in, in ministry and use you in leading or planting a church or doing something to serve him in that way. And God is, is, has been arranging the circumstances of your life and there's a challenge to obedience. Well, what happens when we face a sense of calling? I think this passage helps us see some of the common experiences we have as we walk through it. And the first one is this. I, it just jumped off the, the chapter for me. When we get a sense of calling, we're tempted to cover the problem and disconnect. Many times, our first reaction to a significant sense of calling in our life, to a moment of obedience, is to cover the problem and disconnect. In the text, we see this in the beginning of chapter 4. With all the, consider the changes that have taken place in Esther's life. She went from being an orphaned girl of deceased exiles to the queen of Persia. And so let's not lose touch with how nice that must have been for her. I mean, amazing. She has everything she could want at this point. It leads to being in this crazy position where she could theoretically actually do something to help her people after this incredible problem arises. Mordecai sees the problem and it's in the midst of public, he's like in the midst of public mourning about this. This edict goes out in chapter 3 and Mordecai, he rends his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He begins to weep and wail at the city gate. And before long it gets back to Esther, hey your uncle is out there, this is what's going on. And we see that Esther isn't sure she wants to get involved in chapter 4. We see it like this in verse 4. She sends clothing to cover Mordecai. She's like, you know, put some clothes on. Get yourself together. Act like a professional. Well, he's out there weeping because there's a problem. There's, there's actually a real injustice going on worth weeping over. And it's actually Mordecai's response that is more in line with the heart of God than Esther's response because Esther is looking at that and she's going, I don't know if I want to get involved. Man, how often that's true for us too, right? God begins to burden us. He begins to open our eyes to a way in which he wants to, to move his heart through us. And, and it's going to cost us. And we see that and we're just like, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm just going to forget that problem for a moment. Forget that challenge. And we cover it over. And so... Of course, it can't be left there. And Mordecai instructs her advisor to explain the whole situation and command her to go and plead with the king. And her first reply sounds the way so many of us do at first when God's providence in our life, his movement in our life begins to touch on our personal responsibility. She makes rational excuses for why she's not able to be the one who does anything. She says, you know, the king hasn't asked me to come visit him for like 30 days. I can't just trounce in there. I can't just walk in there. You know, if he doesn't call me and he's not all right with it, I could die. And in many ways, she's right. The truth is, she's right. And, you know, you see then in verse 10 and 11 of chapter uh, 4, it says, Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say this, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So the key idea we see then 
is it's always easier to cover our calling with excuses than to embrace the costly risk of obedience. And when we experience moments of powerful, personal calling in our lives, we will probably do the same thing. First, we'll try to ignore the problem, maybe cover it over, consider that it's somebody else's problem. Then we'll probably start to make excuses and you'll start to feel like, you know, somebody else can do that. I'm not really in a position to do that. I need the stability for this or I've got to continue doing this or this is something that is really important that's going on. I just, I can't be the one. And it's always easier to cover our calling with excuses than to embrace the costly risk of obedience. So I just want to ask you the question, is there anything in your life where it's been easier to turn your head away from it than to really look into what God is doing in that particular area? Ways in which he may be calling you to something new. The second thing we, that happens in the midst of working out this calling is not only do we, we don't first, uh, first we cover it over and we do that, but, but if you're going to do it faithfully, one of the things that God is always so gracious to do is we discover our unique position. You see, up until now, Esther doesn't see her position there as, as, as a unique opportunity that God has purposed and God has designed. And so we see that Mordecai responds to her with those words that I read earlier. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai answers her again. He's like, we are not going to let this go. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? The grace for the moment in Esther's life really comes from Mordecai. Mordecai in all his wisdom, sees the moment like a key that unlocks all that has transpired in their lives up until now. He, he just reads the moment. He gets it. He sees it before she sees it. It's like a Rosetta Stone that clarifies these strange sufferings they've endured as exiles. It stands them on the stage of one of the most meaningful dramas in the preservation of the Jewish people through which God would deliver a Savior to the world. It's a moment when Mordecai sees all the pieces finally coming together and he doesn't want Esther to miss it. And so in the second half of verse 13, his reply begins and it's inspiring just like we just read. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is your unique, unique position. Oh, that God would give us faithful guides like this. And one of the best things that can happen in our life is that God would plant all around us godly people who can see what he's doing even before we see it. You see, so often we need that sense of community, those kind of relationships in our lives where somebody says, I don't think you see this. I don't think you see what God's been doing. But just in case you don't, I need to just say, I think it might be this. And notice how he does it. He doesn't say, you must do this. He says, what if this is the reason that God brought you to the kingdom? It's just that powerful question, isn't it? He uses a powerful question so that she can discover what she's not seeing rather than force it upon her because it's her calling and not his. And so we see this really powerful role that Mordecai plays. You see... It's an amazing lesson in calling, really. He, 
he knows God is going to act to preserve his people because it's through this people that God is going to send a savior. And he says, God's going to do something. But this is your moment. God's going to do something, but this is your moment. That's what calling feels like. That's what it's like in so many circumstances in our life where God is prompting us to a special obedience to work out our callings. Oh, I could say, the Lord is going to work. But man, this is, this is your moment to act. He's brought you here. And so he sees this big picture, but he sees the unique way in which Esther's personal calling participates in it. And so Mordecai helps Esther see that none of her backstory has been without purpose. And I want you to hear this. This is maybe the most important thing for some of you. None of her backstory has been without purpose. And this is hard because her backstory hasn't been easy. She's an orphan child raised by an uncle, exiled out of her homeland. Listen, some of us need to consider today that our backstory, be it tragic or privileged, or a little bit of both like Esther's, was not just about us. You see, the circumstances in your life that have led up to this moment are not just about you. They're not just about us. Some of those circumstances are deeply tragic, deeply difficult, and God has had to come to us in the midst of them, and he's had to comfort us, and maybe even still you need him to do that. But those circumstances are not just about your own personal story. It's one of the ways that God has been weaving you into the story of redemption for other people. You see, in this moment to answer calling looks like you realizing that there's a way in which your personal story is a part of how God is bringing you into his redemptive story and pressing you into the lives of other people who will be redeemed and who will be powerfully healed through your story. God does it all the time. We know this because God is a redeemer. That's what he does. That means he has a way of buying back the broken moments of our lives, even the most painful ones. He has a way of buying them back and making them significant for someone else. And when he makes them for significant for someone else, they all of a sudden become significant for us. And they change. It's transformative. He buys us back in our lives from sin and makes us children. He also redeems broken and tragic and lost moments in our lives and purchases them for the sake of making something new out of them. And here it is for Esther. After this, she will not see her, see her past the same way ever again. In this moment, we see her go all in. So we got two questions. Are you surrounding yourself with godly guides that can help you work out and clarify your calling? We often are not the first to see what we need because of all of our fears. And it's so important to, to us to have spiritual Mordecais in our life who remind us that we cannot pass the moment without losing something. Have you considered how the powerful moments of your past are intended to impact someone else's future? What God might be doing through them, through your personal story? One of the important things about all of this is for us it really comes in this last point. Without thinking well about our callings, we cannot experience what we see Esther experience here and we need so badly. Through this, we see Esther recover a deep sense of her dependency on God. You see, she's not safe. We're never safe without the Lord. And if the Lord is calling us, the best thing we can do is surrender ourselves even to the dangerous callings that he may have for us. 
And we see that she recovers a deep sense of her dependency on God and calling does this in our life. If we don't get in the business of working out our lives personally in this way, we'll often just go through our life thinking we're obeying general commands God has given to us without feeling our deep need for dependency on him. Just how much we have to depend on him. In the text in verse 16, it's, it just says it all. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is what wrestling out our personal role in God's purpose really does. It moves us from comfortable apathy to sincere dependence, which is really where we need to be all along. When God's word is just a general principle, then I can generally obey. I'm tempted to live inside the boundaries of what is comfortable, convenient, clean, safe. But when I discover the ways that God is calling me into his plans, specifically when I feel like I can't just stand by, it requires dependence that I've never experienced before. And it's not about the significance of the situation, how big it is, how large it is, as much as it is about the significance of you and I personally drawing near to God and fulfilling what God has created us for. And God has not only created us to fulfill a calling as people created in his image, he has redeemed us through the faithful calling of his son, Jesus Christ. It was Christ's faithfulness that brings us into the promises of God. Christ's faithfulness in his calling is the reason that we can rest secure knowing that God is going to work out his calling in our lives. And it's Christ's faithfulness that becomes our example of faithfulness. And listen, we'll never take a costly risk with our lives. You won't take a costly risk in a big, small, or medium-sized obedience in your life today that is personal to you until you become convinced, until you truly see in Christ that we only have life because he gave a costly sacrifice. You see, until you see that with crystal clarity, that your life and your only hope for redemption, for your life to be brought into the purpose of God, was for Jesus to give his life, for him to sacrifice his own, you'll never look at yours as surrendered to God. Because you won't see that you were lost, under God's judgment, undeserving, but Jesus redeemed you, and he redeemed you not just for your personal story, but for God's story and all that he wants to do through you. And when we see that, when we see so clearly at the cross the abandonment of Jesus so that we could be saved, it produces in us a reality of surrender where we say, if I perish, I perish, but God, I'm with you. If God is for us, who can stand against us? And why would I want to try to preserve my life when God is calling me to imitate Christ and he's promised that he will raise it from the dead? Life isn't about my safety, it's not about my preservation, it's not about my comfort, it's about him and him alone. You see, Jesus was even more faithful than Esther to fulfill his redeeming calling. Esther rescued a people from physical destruction that they didn't deserve. Jesus saved us from everlasting destruction that we had earned through our sin. Esther chooses to identify with her people and risk her life. Jesus chose to identify with us as sinners, and he gave his life. Esther stepped forward reluctantly, 
But to pay for our sin on the cross, Jesus came willingly. Esther risked her position of privilege. Jesus set aside his and was mocked and beaten and crucified. Esther's act of redemption meant possible death. Jesus knew his would be accomplished through death. And today, that's what Jesus has done to redeem you, to call you. And if you've never come to him in faith to receive the promise of that gift, today is the day to see the beauty of how his calling has faithfulness not only saved a people, but can save you. And so I hope that you'll hear him calling to your heart and respond even now. But for some of us, we need to recover the specific ways in which God is calling us in our everyday life into the obediences that are designed for us. And today, as we look at the cross, as we take the bread and the cup, we remember his sacrifice for us. We need to pray and ask the Lord to produce in us a willingness and a surrender for all that he's called us to be. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for your love for us. We pray that in this time, as we close and reflect on these things, Lord, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help us to embrace the sense of calling that you have in our life, the personal ways in which you want to work out your word in us. Lord, give us courage and a willingness to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.